first today, what we might discern from the big National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, its 20th, starting tomorrow, beyond that much-reported likely outcome of President Xi's third five-year term with all the precedent-breaking power that suggests. The Congress will affect domestic and international audience audiences. Economics and strategy will surely both count. That is, decisions on the price of food, to the constitution, to the ideology guiding the military. It'll all be there. The meeting opens tomorrow. It'll run for a week. It's a gathering of more than 2,000 members. And the policies and key appointments announced during this Congress will offer important clues on China's future direction. So events are being closely watched around the world. A seasoned Australian foreign affairs analyst joins us now to help us read the tea leaves. Richard Maud's a former senior Australian diplomat, now the executive director of policy at the Asia Society Australia and a senior fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Welcome. Thanks very much, Geraldine. It's uh, great to be here. Are you expecting any real surprises from this Congress? Look, I think the first thing to say about the Party Congress and whether or not we'll see any surprises is that elite politics in China is always a black box. But I have to say it's remarkable even the people who make watching this scene their living are lamenting how little we know about the personnel decisions that are probably already made by now, particularly in relation to the all-powerful standing committee of the Politburo. These are the men, and they all are men, who run China. Having said that, I think one thing that we almost certainly won't be surprised by is that Xi Jinping will secure uh, what you rightly Mm. called the precedent-busting third term and possibly set himself to to go on for another, at least another term beyond that. Chinese succession down through the centuries has often been filled with problems and very bloody and causing massive disruption, which we're told is why Deng Xiaoping specifically introduced this convention of limited terms. Now, in formally turning that over, is he in effect turning over Deng's whole prestige as well? Well, I think she's already... Uh, surpassed Deng, both in terms of power and his status in the party. And he probably sits just a rung below Mao. And, you know, there there are some good signs, I think, that he would like to at least ultimately sit level with Mao in terms of uh, his standing in the party. And there's no doubt that that model of collective leadership and of orderly succession has been overturned by C. He's very successfully centralised and consolidated his power. He's, he's done it in a number of ways so that he controls all the key policy levers and he's put his loyalists in influential roles in the party and the security apparatus and he's created this really remarkably strong personality cult around him that positions him at the core of the party All of that creates an environment in which it's quite hard to challenge him. And there obviously is concern, including inside China, about the lack of a succession plan. And part of that comes down to really not knowing how long Xi himself will be determined to stay on in the top job. He also holds other roles. He's the president of China and he's also the head of the party's Central Military Commission, which means he controls... China's Armed Forces, the PLA. Do you have any sense of whether he will retain those two other positions? The expectation in an era where 
<laughs> expectations are dangerous, is that he will certainly retain all three. And many of your listeners will know, of course, that the party role, the general secretary role, is the most important of those. As the, the saying goes, run the party, you run China. The Central Military uh, Commission uh, puts him on top of the military, which is, of course, critically important because in China the military serves the party before it serves the nation. And then as president, he's head of state with all that comes with that, notably on the international stage. There is one wildcard scenario that some Sinologists have wondered about, which is the possibility, perhaps remote, that Xi Jinping might take on the role of chairman of the party. This is a title held by Mao, that he would come out of the Politburo Standing Committee and sit above it so that it would report to him. Now, that would require another general secretary to be appointed, and you could quickly see how that kind of arrangement could come unstuck. It would have to be somebody Xi Jinping really trusted. Yeah. Very interesting. And look, I've just got to clarify something that I don't think I realised. Do you say that the PLA's first duty is to serve the party, not the country? The PLA is the party's military. And, you know, the core of um, a Leninist state, and particularly in China, and especially under Xi Jinping, is that the party leads and controls everything. And you hear Xi Jinping say all of this. I see that a new foreign policy team will be installed, according to the Australian writer Richard McGregor. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, has become quite a presence over the years. And, of course, he's met our foreign minister, Penny Wong. Do you have any sense of the personnel who could take charge and the tone they might adopt? There are a number of names, of course. There are many names bandied about, but no clear front runner. There's an outside chance that Wang Yi might stay on uh, to replace Yang Jiechi, uh, who's the most senior foreign policy maker in the party system. But I think Richard's right. It's probably more likely that both will go. In the end, I don't think it's going to make a material difference because foreign policy and China's place in the world and approach to the world is now very strongly driven by Xi Jinping. And don't forget that the foreign ministry is, especially these days, more an implementer of policy that's decided in the party. The party has its own foreign affairs office and by Xi Jinping himself. Now, I know there has to be, I think, the replacement of Premier Li Keqiang, and that's been a quite interesting relationship to watch. And the, the talk is that he will put his own protégé in there, and there's been, I think, a talk of uh, Li Jiang, I think it is, the current Sh Shanghai Party Secretary and Politburo member, although Shanghai hasn't handled COVID super well, so I wonder what you think about that, because that... That's quite an important decision for him, isn't it? Or maybe it's not anymore. No, I think it still is. There's no doubt that she has overshadowed Lee, but the role of Premier is still important and she would definitely want, uh, if he could, a close ally or protege in that role. Lee Keqiang won't be Premier. That much is clear. He said that himself. There are some, some scenarios in which he could potentially stay on in a senior role but he won't be Premier. You're right, Li Chiang is definitely a Xi protégé and loyalist, but his copybook is blotted by the debacle of the Shanghai lockdown. If he were to be appointed, that would be a very clear sign of Xi's authority in the party. 
But there are other candidates like uh, Wang Yang, who's chair of the China People's Political Consultative Conference, and Hu Chunhua, who's a vice premier. One of the problems, again, for the people who watch this closely is we are in an era where past norms and precedents no longer apply. And in the past, to become premier, you would have had to have served as vice premier and also have met the age limit. I mean, everyone's watching for his hints regarding international conduct. And there was a very interesting observation just last week from Henry Kissinger, who, of course, guided the huge opening up of relations between the US and China in 1972, and who's been largely supportive of China as a responsible citizen of the world. In conversation with our own Kevin Rudd, who I suppose is your boss, is he, in New York? Ah, yes, he he is. (laughs) When asked why Xi would have settled such a no-limits friendship with Putin's Russia, Kissinger drew a striking conclusion. Have a listen. Because he had no need to get himself into that issue. So he will have to adjust his thinking and Chinese policy to the reality of a much weaker Russia than he had estimated. Now, a need to adjust his policy, as people have said, that's quite something coming from Kissinger and it's sort of a a mistake against Xi's own decision-making. Do you think that'll have any impact, particularly, I suppose, on the Chinese elite who will listen to Kissinger, I think? You know, I do think that there would be many in China, possibly even Xi Jinping, who maybe having a bit of buyer's remorse. (laughs) And I don't think that would be regret over the brutality that Russia has shown inside Ukraine, but more, as Kissinger said, that uh, Russia is losing and losing badly at the moment and China faces the prospect of a much weaker partner. There are other costs to China. Certainly, it's another huge friction point in the relationship with America, but also with Europe. You know, Europe, by and large, has been outraged at at, um, China's unwillingness to condemn what Russia is doing and apply the pressure to get Putin to back down. You know, I do think there's one big thing that China wanted out of that no-limits friendship, and that is while China and Russia differ on many issues, Russia's now the junior partner, I think Xi saw advantage in a partnership with Russia that had one agreed or common goal at its core, and that is weakening American power, loosening America's influence on global order, and maximising China's campaign to reshape global order so that it better suits China's uh, interests. Well, that's not quite working out, is it? Uh, remains to be seen. But and look, finally, I'd like to go to the question of economics because there's been some very interesting writing um, about the, I think, difficult balancing act it's been described to understand that Beijing doesn't want to now stimulate the economy to save all sorts of groups like property groups and so on, um, that... It basically, and it knows it's facing a demographic crisis. 
uh, I didn't quite realise that this BCA research points out that China's nationwide price to household income ratio is the highest in the world. The costs of raising a child are the second highest after Korea, which has led to all sorts of, um, you know, they've got major demographic problems. Is this, no one thinks about this very much. Does this matter? Will it matter to them? Well, actually, an awful lot of people are watching and thinking about the future course of China's economy uh, and what that will mean for politics inside China, but also China's relationship with the world. And there are undeniably multiple pressures now on the economy. The IMF and World Bank are forecasting growth this year of about 3%, which is well down on, on where we're used to seeing China. And if, if China can't find the right set of policies to tackle these challenges, then there is a real risk, not, not that the Chinese economy will collapse into the rubble. That's not going to happen. It will still be a very large economy. But you could see a long period where the Chinese economy underperforms. Uh, and, and that's very significant for uh, the sense of the party's place in China, for things like unemployment, for addressing those cost of living um, and unequal growth issues that you mentioned, uh, Geraldine, and um, for whether or not China becomes the biggest economy in the world in um, absolute terms, in real or nominal terms. And those problems, of course, are zero COVID, uh, which is extremely disruptive to economic activity. Uh, debt is very high. You mentioned the woes of the property sector. Uh, demography is an issue. But on top of all that, you, you have uh, a president who is rebalancing Chinese economic policy away from reform and opening and creating a more interventionist, protectionist and, and statist economy. And so reform, reform inside China has been stalled by politics and ideology. And you mm. see that in many ways in the doubling down on industry, industry policy and the crackdown on the tech sector, uh, in the Common Prosperity Campaign, the emphasis now on self-reliance. So all of that is also uh, a drag, on, particularly on the large private sector in China. And the big unknown uh, in all of this is whether, um, uh, you mentioned Kevin Rudd, as Kevin says, whether this approach to the economy ends up being Xi Jinping's Achilles heel. Mm. Some have said, um, you know, a less connected China will be less dynamic and creative. Uh, that's what The Economist says. Having a leader who hates to admit mistakes makes it harder to correct them. I wonder if we, if we will find out if that is right or wrong. Look, thank you very much indeed, Richard Maud. Uh, I suppose uh, our guesswork will be rewarded um, one way or the other in the week to come. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Geraldine. Richard Maud, a former senior Australian diplomat, now the Executive Director of Policy at the Asia Society, talking about that week-long conclave that happens every five years starting tomorrow. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.